I'd invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, this morning as we continue our Advent sermon series together, looking at prophecies of the coming Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to be looking at a very familiar one, verses 1 to 7. I'd encourage you to have a Bible to follow along with us. There should be one there in the pew rack in front of you. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Well, perhaps the best advice that I was ever given during my long and lucrative baseball career (laughs) was, you know it, keep your eye, what? On the ball, right? Keep your eye on the ball. It's great advice. It's great advice. Why? Because if you don't, if you fail to keep your eye on the ball, if you take your eye off the ball, what happens? Well, you miss it, right? You strike out. And in a similar way, that same piece of advice is what I would give to really anyone who truly wishes to understand the overall message, the overall content, the overall purpose of the Bible. But here's what I would say. Rather than keeping your eye on the ball, instead it would go something like this. Keep your eye on the child. Keep your eye on the child. That one single piece of advice, that one hermeneutical advice, that one directive for reading and understanding and interpreting the Bible, listen, it will make all the difference in the world in the way in which you make your way through the pages of Scripture. Keep your eyes fixed on this child because if not, you'll miss it. You'll miss it. You'll miss the overall storyline of Scripture. You'll miss the purpose of the Bible. You'll miss what it is that the biblical authors are intending to communicate. You will miss, frankly, who the Bible is really all about. You'll miss Him. Keep your eye on the child. Last week, we saw there in the opening pages of Genesis, chapter 3, the very first promise about this child. That from the very beginning, if you remember after the fall, of mankind in the garden, in the very midst of God's curse and judgment, God, He had made a promise to them. In Genesis 3.15, it was the first gospel promise. It was the promise that a seed of the woman, an offspring, a child would come who would ultimately have victory over the serpent. He He would undo what Satan had done. He would reverse the effects of the fall and he would reconcile mankind back to God. And so it's that promise in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 about this coming child that really then is to set the trajectory for the rest of the Bible. Everything that comes in these pages that follow are really to be read and understood through that lens. And so, beloved, we are meant this morning to heed this same advice, keeping our eyes on this child. Don't lose sight of him. And that advice is especially helpful when we come to passages like the one before us this morning in Isaiah chapter 9, where yet again we are reminded here of this promised Child. In fact, in fact, we're going to see here a very familiar prophecy about the birth of Christ. Some 800 years even before his arrival. And this prophecy, unlike perhaps any other, it gives us here one of the most amazing descriptions of who this child would be 
and why it is he would come. And so we need to heed this advice. But, but this advice to, to, to keep our eyes, our attention, our focus on this child, it's also important because not unlike those in Isaiah's day, many of us too find ourselves this Christmas season in the midst of great darkness. As verse 2 says, in a land of deep darkness. We, we too might find ourselves this morning in darkness, in gloom, in grief, in sin, in sadness, in suffering, in political turmoil, in upheaval, in despair, and perhaps even seeming hopelessness. Because, listen, not all is merry and bright, is it? And so, it is in those very moments, beloved, that we too need to desperately be reminded to keep our eyes on this child because there we find hope. There we find peace. There we find joy. That's what Christmas is all about. The light of the world has stepped into the midst of our darkness and our brokenness. And so we need to keep our eyes on this child. Isaiah chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. If you have your place there, I would invite you, as is our custom, to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together. The prophet Isaiah says in verse 1, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his, for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. Well, nowhere do we find more Christmas texts in all of the Old Testament than the book of Isaiah. In fact, the New Testament writers quote the prophet Isaiah more than all of the other Old Testament prophets combined. And so really, no one, no one saw Christmas coming with more clarity than the prophet Isaiah. In fact, this is why, if you remember in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel appears to Joseph and tells him that his betrothed wife, Mary, a virgin, will bear a son, Matthew reminds his readers in chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, 
And that prophet, of course, being the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, quoting, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Or in Luke chapter 2, when the angel, if you remember, announces to the shepherds the birth of Christ, while not directly quoting from Isaiah chapter 9, the, the allusion to these verses here is, is actually unmistakable because in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 10 we read, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day. That's almost a direct word-for-word quote from Isaiah 9, verse 6. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And so we see that the New Testament writers, they record for us that the prophet Isaiah, perhaps more than any other Old Testament prophet, clearly spoke of, clearly foresaw, clearly foretold the birth of this promised child. This is exactly what we see here in these verses this morning, in verses 1 to 7. It is clear that Isaiah here, he foresees this future promised child. And he wants to comfort God's people by reminding them that God himself, he will send the light of the world into our darkness. And so I want to look at this passage with you this morning under two headings. Here they are. Number one, we're going to see the news of this child in verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to see the nature of this child in verses 6 and 7. So the news of this child and the nature of this child. But before we do that, I do want to just make a few observations about this passage, a few general observations, three of them as we begin. Number one, observation number one, notice Notice that our passage, verses 1 to 7, this this promise of this coming child is set notice in the past tense. Isaiah speaks of these future events here as if they have already happened. Did you catch that? Notice there, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That's past tense. Or in verse 3, notice, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Again, past tense. And so, clearly, Isaiah speaks of future events here, notice, in the past tense. He speaks of them as if they have already happened. This is what theologians call the prophetic past tense. You see it often throughout the prophets. The the biblical prophets do this all the time. Why? Here's why, beloved. It's because it is to show the certainty of this promise. You can take this one to the bank. This promise is so sure, it is so secure, that Isaiah can speak of it as if it has already happened. In fact, notice at the end there in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When God Almighty promises something, it's a done deal, friends. Observation number two, notice that Isaiah, he seems to blend together here in verses 1 to 7, multiple future prophecies about this coming child. In fact, Isaiah speaks here and has in view here both first Christ's coming at his first advent, his birth, as well as his second coming, his second advent, his return. Notice verse 6, for 
To us a child is born. This is a reference to Christ's first advent, his first birth. And then notice verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this, however, notice, it appears to be a reference to his second advent, his, his still future return, when Jesus will fully and finally establish his kingdom forevermore. And so Isaiah, notice here, he, he blends together these, the, these, these two events as if they're one and the same, doesn't he? Now, why does he do that? It, is he wrong? Is Isaiah wrong in what he predicts is going to happen? No. No. I, I like to call this a mountain range prophecy. A mountain range prophecy. That's not original to me. A mountain range prophecy. Here's what I mean. If you've ever been hiking in a large mountain range, say the, the Rockies or the Swiss Alps or something like that, and you look off into the distance, you see this, this mountain range that looks like one mountain range, right? This huge mountain range. But as you get closer, you realize that those mountains that once first appeared close together, they're, they're actually much, much further apart. So you get to one and you realize, wow, you've got to go a lot further to the next one, right? One mountain range is really multiple mountain ranges. And really, really, that's exactly what's happening here. In this one mountain prophecy, this single prophecy, Isaiah speaks of both Christ's first coming and his second coming. Both advents are in view here, which means, beloved, which means for you and I, this side of the manger, this side of the cross, that we are waiting, we are waiting in between these two comings. This is the already, but the not yet. Christ has come, and he is coming again. This coming one, he would be a child, but he'll also be a king. And Isaiah speaks of both. Third observation. Notice, notice that the promise of this coming child, it means good news. It means good news. Verse 6, this promise is a gospel promise, friends. It's gospel. How is that? Because at the very moment that the prophet utters these familiar words there in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, we are reminded at that very moment, listen, that we cannot save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. God himself must act vicariously through this coming child on our behalf. God doesn't say save yourself. He doesn't say clean up your life. He doesn't say try harder or be better. No, no, he says notice here instead, I am going to give you a son. I'm gonna give you a son. To us a son is given, given for us. God himself will do this work of deliverance and salvation for us. So hear the gospel proclamation in these verses. First, I want you to notice with me the news of this child. Verses 1 to 15, excuse me, 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5. Notice that as chapter 9 opens, notice the context of this chapter is one of gloom and doom. The setting here is rather bleak, isn't it? It's, it's quite dark. In fact, if, if, if you were to back up just one verse to chapter 8, verse 22, notice the prophet says, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick 
darkness. I don't know about you, but I always despise this time of year when the days are shorter and the sun seems to set so early, right? I mean, it makes for long nights, doesn't it? 7 p.m., so it feels a lot like midnight sometimes. And many of you perhaps know exactly what I mean. You go to get up and you go to work and it's dark and then you come home at night and it's dark and it just seems like it's darkness all of the time. And that's the setting. That's the context here of Isaiah chapter 9. It's one of gloom. It's one of darkness. There's darkness everywhere. Darkness nationally. Darkness politically. Darkness morally. Darkness spiritually. Why? Well, first notice here the bad news of darkness. This bad news of darkness, because we, we, we have to first see Isaiah 9 in the context of this thick darkness described there in chapter 8, verse 22. In order for this coming light that we see in chapter 9, verse 2, to, to really seem bright and, and beautiful and glorious. And, and so to do so, we, 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 have to, we have to go back for a moment to the 8th century. This is, this is still about 800 years before Christ's coming. The great King Uzziah is dead. Chapter 6, verse 1. And now, now the wicked King Ahaz is on the throne in Judah. Chapter 7, verse 1. And by this time, the kingdom of Israel is divided. You have Israel in the north and Judah there in the south. And Judah is fairly prosperous economically, however. However, with Ahaz now on the throne, they're also quite corrupt. For as goes the king... So also goes the kingdom. And wicked King Ahaz, his, his biggest concern is political and economic success. It is not faithfulness to Yahweh. In fact, in fact, we read of King Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16. Here's what we read. That Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done. And now, now Judah is facing threats from its most immediate enemies to the north. Syria and Israel. The line of David is in question here. It's in jeopardy here. The kingdom is in jeopardy. The promise in 2 Samuel 7 is in question. So what does wicked King Ahaz do? Well, rather than trusting in the Lord... Rather than turning to him for help and for deliverance, what does he do? Here's what he does. He turns to Assyria. He turns to the political superpower of the time. And he forms an alliance with this pagan kingdom, which, by the way, God had told his kings not to do. And so, in, second, or in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, and he says to him, he says to him, okay, king, pick a sign, any sign. Any sign you want, God will give you a sign, and he'll give you a sign that he is not going to let these kings of the north defeat you, and therefore you are not to form this alliance with pagan Assyria. But Ahaz wants no sign. He didn't care anything about obedience to the Lord. And so God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyways. (laughs) What's the sign? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Here is the sign that God himself will protect and preserve 
the line of David. God is going to miraculously, he's going to supernaturally cause a virgin to give birth to a child. And not just any child. No, this baby that will be born, he'll be Emmanuel. He'll be God with us. Well, I wish I could say that things got better for Judah. However, in chapter 8, we see that they actually go from bad to worse. Instead, there is rampant idolatry. There's evil and corruption and national insecurity and fear. Sounds a lot like our day, does it not? In fact, ironically, the people are living in fear of everything but God himself. They refuse to walk in the ways of Yahweh and his word, and therefore... In chapter 8, verse 7, notice that God says that this very same political superpower, Assyria, whom they sought to make an ally, this very same superpower will actually be the very tool in the hands of God to judge his people. Judah is going to be destroyed. And so by the time you get to chapter 8, verse 22, no matter where you look, the result of their disobedience will be only darkness. God will plunge them, Isaiah says, verse 22, into thick darkness. And Isaiah prophesies of this coming judgment, darkness and gloom and despair and anguish. I mean, this is bad news, right? However, however, it is into this dark situation, beloved, that Isaiah proclaims the news of this coming child. The Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. God isn't going to leave his people in the darkness. Light is coming. Notice second, the good news of light. Verse 1, notice, verse 1, the contrast, the the abrupt shift that happens there in verse 1. But, but, There will be no gloom for her who was in darkness. That's quite the abrupt change in mood, is it not? Chapter 8, verse 22, distress, thick darkness, the gloom of anguish. But now, now, chapter 9, verse 1, there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom for her who was in darkness. Though the darkness of God's judgment is coming, so too will be the light of his salvation. God is is going to deliver and rescue his people. He's going to preserve a remnant. He's going to save a remnant of those who trust in Yahweh and trust in his word and are looking for this coming Messiah. Verse 2, notice, light is coming. Look there, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Light is coming. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. This light is the Inbreaking of God's Messiah, this coming child, the light of the world coming in to our darkness. And so in effect, in effect, in verses 1 and 2, what God is saying here is the same thing, if you remember, that he commanded back in Genesis 1. Let there be light. Light is coming. But notice where this light will come. Where is this light to be found? Verse 1, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way 
of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Where will this light be found? Isaiah says this light is going to appear in Galilee. In Galilee. This promised child, this light, will come from Galilee. Now, why is that important? Verse 1, notice the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, this region of Galilee. These would be the most northern tribes, the most northern regions of Judah. And thus, these were also the regions from which Judah would most often be invaded by her enemies. This was a war-torn area. This was a a region of of devastation and and destruction and invasion. Namely, Namely, this coming Assyrian invasion that is going to conquer them in judgment from the north. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But notice, notice, however, that that, that as Isaiah peers into the distant future, he actually perceives, notice, that this light, the inbreaking of this light, it's going to break into the very region that God first said would experience his judgment. Ray Ortland comments, he says, God came to his people first where they had suffered the most, and from that place, He launched salvation to the world. God's Messiah would first appear not in noble Jerusalem, as we might expect, the political headquarters. No, this Messiah is going to first appear in the region of backward, lowly, across-the-tracks Galilee. In essence, those who first experienced the darkness of God's judgment would also be the first to experience the light of His gospel. In fact, this is why we read in Matthew chapter 4. In fact, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus, if you remember, begins what? His Galilean ministry. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, we read these words. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea. And then notice, notice what Matthew says. In the territory where? Of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now why? Why did he do that? Destination, location? Why, why did he move there? Why use Galilee as the launching point for his ministry? Here's why, beloved. Because, verse 14, notice what Matthew says. It was so that... What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then in verses 15 and 16, Matthew goes on to quote from where? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And then notice, in verse 17, Matthew says, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brothers and sisters, the king is here. The king has arrived. Light has come. And we don't have to wonder what Isaiah was talking about. We don't have to guess who he was speaking of there. No, in fact, Matthew, he reaches all the way back to Isaiah chapter 9. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the one bringing light of God's salvation to this very location that Isaiah had prophesied some 800 years before. So listen, listen. 
The darkness of sin and judgment is being dispelled because the light of the world has come. And this light first appears in Galilee. But notice also that this child, this one who would come from Galilee, what Matthew says, what Isaiah says, notice, is for the nations. The nations. Look there, verse 1. The land beyond the Jordan. Isaiah 9, verse 1. The land beyond the Jordan. Galilee, where? Of the nations. The region of Galilee, because it lay on the northern border of Judah, it was a very ethnically diverse place. Jews and Gentiles and everything in between. And so, Galilee was the place that represents the nations. Verse 1. Galilee of the nations. So notice we see here, even in Isaiah chapter 9, beloved, we see God's heart for the nations. We see his love for the nations. It is no accident that the very place in which his Messiah, this gospel, would first be preached, where Jesus would begin his ministry, it's a place that represents what? It represents the nations. Listen, God's plan has always been to have a people from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth. He is the God not only of the Jews, he is the God of the Gentiles. And this salvation, this light, it is for the nations. This is why we want you to come next Sunday ready to give for the nations. This is why we are planning a more long-term strategy for our own global missions, because it's for the nations. It is because this gospel This good news is for the nations. And brothers and sisters, this is good news for you and I. Why? Because listen, we are the nations. The gospel has come to us. And so we must be those who go to the nations, to Galilee of the nations. And then notice, notice though, in verses three to five, the effect that this good news, the good news of this child's coming. Notice the effect it's going to have. What what will be the effect when this light shines, when Messiah comes? Well, notice two things Isaiah says. It will be, and it will mean joy, verse 3, and it will mean victory, verses 4 and 5. It's going to mean joy, and it's going to mean victory. And and notice, notice yet again, in verses 3 to 5, these events described here are described as if what? They've already happened. They've already taken place. Notice in verse 3, his coming, his coming will mean joy. Joy, look there, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Notice that the intended response to this child's arrival, notice what it's to provoke. This First effect of Messiah's coming is to have what, friends? Joy. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy. We should be joyful. And in verse 3, notice Isaiah, he likens this joy to a great harvest. Look there, verse 3. As with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is a feast. This is a, this is a celebration. It's a banquet of joy. What was once only gloom and darkness and doom will one day give way to, notice, unspeakable joy. This child's arrival signals joy. 
And friends, listen, one of the things that God wants to do in your life this Christmas as you keep your eyes fixed on this child is he wants to ground your joy in this child. This one who has come, this one who is coming again, the one who is the source, he is the fountain of true and lasting joy, unspeakable joy. And notice in verses 4 and 5, his coming will mean victory. Victory, look there, verse 4. Verse 4 describes this child's, notice, shining forth to deliver them and redeem them. Look there in verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on the day of Midian. In verse 4, who is acting here? This you is God himself. He will do this. In fact, notice there in verse 4, Isaiah, he uses this familiar story, if you remember, of Gideon. Gideon and Judges, how God will deliver them. Remember the story. God uses little old Gideon and 300 men to fight off and defeat thousands upon thousands of Midianite soldiers. But in reality, God did all the work. They did nothing for this victory, right? And the prediction here in verse 4 is that one like Gideon is coming. He's coming and he too will have victory in quite the unusual way. He, w- he won't be very assuming. He, he isn't going to come with a mighty army to conquer. No, actually his first coming, his first coming will appear rather small. And yet by his death, the Lord Jesus Christ, he will bring complete and final victory over our greatest enemy, over sin and death and Satan. And when he comes, notice verse 5, he will trample the enemy. Look there, verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Friends, God's enemies... And the enemies of his people, they will be defeated. All wars will cease. Every weapon, every article of clothing used in battle, Isaiah says, is going to be destroyed when Messiah comes. Again, as Ray Ortland writes about verse 5, he says this. He says, our liberator, our liberator will not only defeat all the forces of evil, he will put a final end to conflict itself. Every mechanism for tyranny will go, he says, into the bonfire of God's grace. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news in this war-torn world? He's bringing joy. He's bringing victory. Now, some of you may say, you may say, well, pastor, Christ has come, and yet there isn't final victory. There isn't worldwide peace like Isaiah talks about here, right? If Christ coming means the end of war, then why is it still going on today? And again, I would just remind you, beloved, that we are living in the already, but we are living in the not yet. We are living actually in D-Day, and we are awaiting V-Day. If you remember in World War II, the war was essentially decided during D-Day. 
the Battle of Normandy in 1944. But, however, it took Germany, what? Another year to actually surrender, didn't it? V-Day. It was an already, but a not yet victory. And friends, listen. You and I are living in between. We are living in D-Day. We are living in the cross of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, his ascension, and we are waiting for V-Day in which he will return finally. And listen, he trampled our enemies at Easter, and he will trample them once and for all when he returns again. And then when that happens, verses 3 to 5, They will fully and finally, they will become, listen, they will become a visible reality. This is the good news of this child. It's good news, isn't it? But then after describing what this child would do, notice in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah turns now to describe who this child would be. So he goes from describing his actions to describing his person. Second, look there, the nature of this child, verses 6 and 7. The nature of this child. In his commentary on Isaiah, John Oswalt writes, or excuse me, he asks the question, but how will God accomplish this great feat described here in verses 1 to 5? He writes, through, he says, the birth of a child. Verses 6 and 7, we see the nature of this child. We see this baby who would be born. And we discover, notice, that this isn't just any child, is it? No. No, this is no ordinary child. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice here, just notice three things that Isaiah draws our attention to about the nature of this child. Notice his birth, his name, and his kingdom. His birth, his name, and his kingdom. Notice first his birth there in verse 6. For to us a child is born. The first characteristic that Isaiah describes here about the nature of this Messiah, this conquering king, is with the humility and gentleness of a child. A baby would be born. Verse 6, we see here, notice, we see here Christ's full humanity, don't we? For to us a child is born. Jesus was born as a baby, small Vulnerable, helpless. He would be fully human in every way. Paul says in Galatians 4.4, born of woman. He would be born. He would eat. He would sleep. He would cry for his mama just like babies do. The little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It's not true. He cried. He was born. He grew up. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to speak. He had to learn to feed himself. For to us, a child is born. And that humanity is important, isn't it? It is so important. Why? 
Because as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make, he says, propitiation for the sins of his people. Why was he born? Friends, he was born to die. That's why he was born. That's why he became a baby. He became a baby. He became a man in order to die. Only someone fully God could die for the sins of humanity. and Fully man, excuse me. Only a man could bear the wrath of God for sinful mankind. Verse 6, for to us, you and I, a child is born. This baby, he was born, he was born in order to die in our place for our sins. And in verse 6, notice, to us, a son is given. Now, it would seem, it would seem here that Isaiah is perhaps at least hinting at this child's deity. Now, it's going to become explicit in just a second, but if it wasn't already back in chapter 7, verse 14, right? God with us. But at least it seems he's hinting here. Notice verse 6, to us a son is what? Given. Given by whom? Given by the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his Son. This child, he would be Mary's son. He'd be the son of Eve. He'd be the son of Abraham. He'd be the son of David. But listen, he would be the son of God. And God would give his own Son as the Savior of the world and just notice, notice here how God's, God's grace, God's grace is underscored here, there in verse 6, where two times, two times he says it, it's to us, it's to us. That's the language of grace. Christmas is about God's grace. We don't deserve this Messiah. And so in order for this message, friend, to change you, you have to receive it in grace, by faith. He is the ultimate gift given to us. But then notice, notice Isaiah goes on to describe, as he describes who this child is, and friends, it's at this point, it's at this point that there is no mistaking the identity of this baby. Mm -mm. Look there, his names, his names, verse 6, notice the four titles given to this child. Verse 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Again, John Oswald writes, he says, these titles underscore the ultimate deity of this child. In fact, just notice, notice the, the perfect symmetry here that Isaiah provides for us in these four nouns naming who this child would be, counselor, God, father, prince, and then as well as the four adjectives to describe what this child would be like. He'll be wonderful. He'll be mighty. He'll be everlasting. He'll be a prince of peace. And in each one of these titles, it's emphasizing here, it's both his, his identity and the character of this child. Look there. Look at these names. First, notice, wonderful counselor. Wonderful counselor. Literally, it reads, a wonder of a counselor. Alec Matier notes that that word, wonderful, it's, it's actually used 15 times. 15 times in the Old Testament to describe the extraordinary acts of God. This word is a title of deity. Wonderful. In fact, in fact this is the closest word 
in the Hebrew language to the word supernatural. Supernatural. This child, he will possess, notice, supernatural counsel, supernatural wisdom, wisdom far above any human wisdom. He, he's going to rule with supernatural wisdom with perfect counsel. Later in Isaiah 11 too, he goes on to describe him like this. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Wonderful, supernatural wisdom. Which means, friends, listen, Jesus needs no counselors. He needs no advisors. Isaiah 40 says... What man shows him counsel? And the answer is none. None. Any good president, any good king, any good administration, he he listens to his advisors, doesn't he? He looks for counsel from his advisors, right? But Christ, he needs no counsel. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor. Which means, which means, beloved, that you can trust him. You can look to his word for wisdom. It means that you can believe that whatever his plan is for your life, that's what's best. It's good wisdom. He's wise. Why? Because he possesses all wisdom. And we see that wisdom ultimately on display in the cross, don't we? The foolishness of God is wiser than men. He is the wonderful counselor. Second, notice he is the mighty God. Now, Now, there is no mistaking who this child is, is there? Don't be fooled. It's not Hezekiah. It's no other king of Israel but this one. He is mighty God. He is God in human flesh. He is truly man. He is born of woman. He is born this child, but he is truly God. This child not only possesses the wisdom of God, he possesses, notice, the power of God as well. Why? Because he himself is God. He is the almighty God. He is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can deliver. Friends, we are incapable of saving ourselves. We are incapable of delivering ourselves. It will take a mighty act of God, and this baby, born in Bethlehem, is the mighty God. Third, notice also he is everlasting father. Everlasting father. Now, When you hear that name, don't think Trinity, okay? Don't think, does this mean the Son is the Father, right? Is this modalism, early church heresy that said that the Father and the Son were the the same person? Is that what's going on here? No, no. Don't think Trinity. This is not a statement about the second person of the Trinity. Rather, here's what it is. Here's what it is. This is a statement about this Messiah, Jesus' fatherly care. His fatherly care. He will rule like a father. Father speaks of his loving concern. Father speaks of his tender care. Old Testament kings, they were often depicted as fathers toward their people. And that's what Jesus will be. He will be the everlasting father. In fact, notice, notice, however, there is something distinctly different about this Messiah's fatherly care. What is it? Verse 6. He is an everlasting father. His fatherly care knows no end. His fatherly care 
is eternal because he himself is eternal. He's the everlasting father to his people. And thus this newborn child will be the eternal one who from everlasting to everlasting is a father to his people. He will rule as a father. And just in case you think that this title, it would be better suited for God the Father than God the Son, let me just remind you. Let me just remind you what Jesus says to Philip, if you remember, in John chapter 14, when he says, if you have seen me, what? You have seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He will rule with fatherly care. He's an everlasting father. But fourth, notice, he's a prince of peace. He's a prince of peace. Now, when you hear that word peace, don't just simply think no conflict. Don't just simply think no war, that it's just peacetime, right? That's true. Jesus is the prince who will bring peace on earth in a way that no peace or no prince, no king, no president, no government has ever done before. Complete and total peace. However, that word there for peace, the Hebrew word shalom, it means so much more. In fact, shalom, it doesn't simply mean the absence of conflict. No. Rather, it means wholeness. It means completeness. It means to set right. Jesus will make all things complete. Jesus, he will bring wholeness. He will make right all that is wrong in this world. He will heal all that is broken in this world. He is going to bring total shalom. He's the Prince of Peace. But listen, this kind of total peace, it is only good news, friends, if you and I have experienced the peace of God. If we have peace with God, the return of this prince to establish shalom, it isn't good news for those who are in rebellion against this prince. No, no. It isn't good news for sinners like you and me who, as Jonathan Edwards says, are in the hands of an angry God. He is angry because of your sin and your rebellion. And you see, friends, this is why we need both Advents, don't we? We need his first Advent when he came as a baby in order to make peace with God by the blood of his cross where he will reconcile us to God through his death. But we need his second Advent as well. When he comes to bring final, complete, and total shalom, he's the Prince of Peace. In fact, we see here just a picture of this complete and final shalom that he will bring when Messiah comes. Look there, as he finally ushers in his kingdom in verse 7. Look there, finally, his kingdom. His kingdom, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, prince of peace, he will one day return. And when he does, he will usher in a kingdom that will know no end. 
Verse 6, the government, notice, shall be upon his shoulders. The government of God's eternal kingdom rests on his shoulders alone. He will reign on the throne of David forever. And his rule, notice, it will know only total peace and justice and righteousness forevermore. Listen, all of our longings for perfect and unending government are found in Jesus. Found in Jesus, listen. Isn't that good news? It's good news when you look at the political landscape today. Don't trust in governments. Don't trust in presidents. Trust in this king who will come. In Isaiah 9, he tells us that when this ultimate king comes, and this ultimate kingdom comes, there will be no more injustice in the world. There will be no more evil. There will be no more unrighteousness. There will be no more war. There will be no more national security threats. There will be no more evil or sin or death. No, when this child comes, when this king comes, there will be an end to every kingdom but one. Russia's gone. China's gone. Assyria's gone. America is gone. But this one will stand. His kingdom will remain. And this kingdom that was inaugurated when he was born 2,000 years ago, it will be consummated when he returns in glory. And so we wait. We wait for V-Day. We're living in D-Day. We're waiting for V-Day. And so how should Isaiah 9 land on you this morning? Let me just give you two closing applications. One one for my non-Christian friends in the room and one for my fellow Christians. First, to my non-Christian friend in the room, to, to the skeptic, to the unbeliever in the room this morning. Listen, it is hard for me to overstate, flailing my arms, it is hard for me to overstate the importance of verses 6 and 7. Here is what Isaiah 9 says to you. If this is true, this prophecy here about Christ's coming some 800 years before his birth, or if Isaiah 7.14 is true that he would be born of a virgin, if, if all these promises that we've seen are true about his coming and who he is, if this is true, listen, skeptic, unbeliever, then everything else in the Bible is easy to believe. Every teaching, every miracle, every supernatural event, if Isaiah 9 isn't true, then don't believe anything the Bible says. But if it is true, then you must deal with this child. You must deal with this baby. And Jesus' words would be the same to you in grace. Before he comes, they would be the same to you in grace as they were to his first audience there in Galilee when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But to my fellow Christians in the room, let me just say as we close this morning to allow this prophecy to assure you this morning of God's deep, unending, unwavering, unchanging, committed, faithful love for you. Of the Father's love for you, that he would give his son for to us a son is given.
And listen, perhaps for, for some of you, you find yourself this morning in, in, in a similar darkness and gloom as those in Isaiah's day. And you're wondering, will God keep his promises? Will God be faithful? Will, will he do what he said he will do? Has he forgotten me? Is he against me? Are you wondering if he truly loves you? Keep your eye on this child. Let it reassure you of God's unending love for you. In fact, notice here how the prophet ends in verse 7. Look there. Again, after these amazing promises in verses 1 to 6, notice verse 7. The zeal, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. How can we know it will happen? How can we be sure this will come to pass? Here's how. God's zeal, his passion, his wholehearted devotion ensures it. God Almighty, the Lord of hosts, will ensure his Messiah's coming. He will ensure the salvation of his people because, listen, he is zealous for the glory of his son. He is zealous for his own glory. And listen, beloved, he is zealous for you. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, he will do this. And so our response to him this Christmas is to love him in return with the same zeal and the same passion as he loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus, this child, God in human flesh. Oh Lord, may you stir in our hearts this morning zeal as we contemplate the deep love of the Father to send his son for sinners like us and to be reminded, Lord, that there is hope as we wait. We're in D-Day. We're waiting for V-Day. Come, Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, please. How deep the Father's love for us how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure how great the pain of searing loss the Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the Chosen One Bring many sons to glory Behold the man upon the cross My sin Upon his shoulders Ashamed I hear my mocking voice Call out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. 
I will not boast in anything.